Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.25, Law and Religion in the Dominion of New England. Last time when we left off, we were exploring the many beloved changes being made by Edmund Andros to the new Dominion of New England. And of course, by beloved, I mean that they were deeply unpopular and completely alienating to just about everybody involved. Andros quickly established through his tax and land reforms that this new government was not going to be in any way meaningfully representative. Even the moderates that were in the council were shocked by their lack of power and influence over the daily affairs of the colony. They could do little more than offer up advice and opinions in what was an increasingly autocratic government. The changes made to the colony did, however, have the unintended, though ultimately predictable, effect of a mass alienation towards Andros himself. Even members of the council who had initially supported him suddenly found themselves on the wrong side of his new policies. These new policies regarding taxes and land grants meant that very nearly every single member of the colony was directly affected, including those who were otherwise seemingly in favor of, or had at least supported, the new Andrus regime and served on his council. This week, we are going to begin by heading back to New England to look at the reforms that took place to the colonial legal system. We are then going to turn and spend the majority of the episode looking at the powder keg that was the religious question. Andros was adamant about establishing a proper Anglican church in New England, something that the Puritans were adamant about rejecting. And yeah, spoiler alert, but Andros is not going to do any better at making friends this week than he did during our last episode. Among the changes that Andros made to the colonial structure came in the form of changes to the colonial justice system. Massachusetts had always been something of an interesting place when it came to their legal system. If you recall from back in episode 1.27, we had discussed the legal system of Massachusetts. Passing a legal code in the colony had been difficult to begin with, with men like John Winthrop standing in opposition to men like William Dudley over the need for a formal legal code. The argument that many of them had is that they already had a system of laws. It was called the Bible. Ultimately, the battle was lost and the colony introduced the Massachusetts Body of Liberties. The Body of Liberties, however, was far from being a bastion of legal reform. It was a document that largely codified the existing beliefs of the colonists. Namely, that the chief law throughout Massachusetts was going to be biblical law. Nothing that we have seen thus far in Massachusetts should make this fact in the slightest bit surprising. The colony had viewed their very charter as being of divine origin believing that the dissolution of that charter was a punishment from God. Therefore, when Edmund Andros rolls in and decides to reform the legal system to something more in line with what you would have seen in England and elsewhere around the empire, he is met with predictable resistance. For James II, re-establishing the accepted and long-held English justice system was critical. He was trying to reassert royal prerogative, and for him it was essential that the dominion fall into line. Now, we have already touched some on the legal system, as the first big test drive of that system is what we saw last week when looking at the tax protests. They are in many cases the proverbial guinea pigs for this new system. Among these first major reforms came changes to the jury selection process. Previously, jury panels had been made up of landowners as chosen by the freemen in the colony. Under Andros, the decision on who was going to serve as a juror fell under the purview of the sheriff. The colonists objected to this being arbitrary and denying them due process. 
The chief reason for the complaint stemmed out of the fact that the sheriff was somebody who was directly appointed by Edmund Andros and answered to him. This means that, in effect, Andros had the power of controlling who was going to be on jury panels through his appointee. Furthermore, the jurors no longer needed to be freemen. If you remember from last season, the requirements to be a freeman were that, one, you are not a slave or indentured, and two, that you are a member of the Puritan Church. This meant previously that all potential jurors in Massachusetts were church members, and therefore fell in line with the narrow scope of Puritan justice. However, with Andros, now the reality for the Puritans suddenly became one where a non-church member could potentially be sitting in judgment of them or their property. This would have been an unthinkable position just a few years earlier. We have already seen the power of this new system during those tax trials from last week. During those trials, Andrus was successful at picking jurors who were friendly to him and basically made it where the needed verdict was all but assured. Furthermore, and not to be glossed over, one of the requirements was that the trials be held in Boston. This meant that for somebody accused outside of Boston, they were going to incur the considerable expense of having to bring their case far from home. This would absolutely have a chilling effect on justice and goes a long way to explaining why every single county in the United States today has a separate courthouse. By forcing the accused to travel long distances for trial, it increased the likelihood that key witnesses would not be able to make the journey and hence not attend or provide testimony at the hearing. Even down to requiring that the Puritans place their hand upon the Bible when taking the oath was despised by the Puritans who viewed such acts as being a form of idolatry. The Puritans viewed the changes to the justice system as being repugnant and infringing on their religious rights. I wanted to detail justice in particular because it goes a long way towards showing just how much the daily existence of the colonists had been uprooted. Andros did not come in and make some minor changes. Rather, we are talking about systemic changes to all the major systems within Massachusetts. Obviously, the Crown had a legitimate reason to bring uniformity to the legal system throughout the colonies. Legal systems did, and still do today, require a uniform and predictable application of the law. However, for the Puritans in New England, this isn't something that made them feel any better. What they knew is that every aspect of their world that had existed previously to this had now been uprooted and thrown into complete conflict. Well, changes to the justice system were shocking and seen as arbitrary exercises of power by Andros. Few issues would draw the ire of the colonists more than reforms to the religious structure of the colony. The government of the Massachusetts Bay Company was the church. It is as simple as that. The laws were all rooted in the Bible, and the entrance to the government ran directly through the church. Recall that if you were not a member of the church, you were not going to be a member of the Massachusetts General Court. However, with the dissolution of the colonial charter came the end of Puritan hegemony over the political bodies of Massachusetts. This was not something that was universally detested. Remember that the moderates were more than happy to purge Puritan influence from the government. However, among the former leadership of the colony, this was potentially the biggest foul of them all. 
nobody enjoyed having their land messed with or their taxes raised. But now you were talking about making decisions that were going to affect their immortal souls. Under the former charter, the Puritans had built a society that was held in close orbit around the church. We have seen time and time again what happened when anybody attempted to interfere with the church or introduce ideas that went against the commonly accepted position of the colony. Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson particularly are two good examples of people who went against the grain. It wasn't that dissension towards the church was discouraged. It was forbidden. Having a society so closely tied to the church, and having the church act as a gateway into government, meant that historically attacks against the church were attacks against the government and indeed attacks against the very colony itself. In this respect, when Andrews came in with plans to introduce Anglicanism and weaken the Puritan church, this was viewed from the former leadership as nothing short of a complete destruction of society. For the crown, the central position of the church in the society and the government meant that the church itself was the nexus of sedition in the colony. Edward Randolph had indeed noticed that and loudly protested that the actions of the church were treasonous. As we discussed in depth last season, being a member of the Puritan church was a requirement if you wanted to be in the government of Massachusetts. With the Puritan church sitting in the center of the controversy, it needed to be broken. It also means that we should differentiate between this church scandal and what we've seen previously. Ecumenically, sure, there were going to be disagreements between the Anglican Church and the Puritan Church that had come to exist in Massachusetts. However, dogmatic considerations ranked relatively low on the list of pragmatic concerns for the Crown. The major concern was that with the Church holding such a central position in society, in order to truly break that stranglehold that the faction held over politics in Massachusetts, you needed to destroy the hegemony of the Puritan Church itself. It is under this pretext that Edmund Andros was going to be required to operate. The primary objective for Andros was to break that stranglehold that the church held over the government of Massachusetts. Under Dudley, the Puritan church was at least reasonably safe. Dudley had little interest in a strike against the church, as he was still essentially an insider, despite being a member of the moderate party. Andros had no such allegiances and was more than happy to exercise his position as a colonial outsider. The logical place for Andros to begin the process of dismantling the existing church was to introduce the Anglican church into the colony. Prior to Andros setting sail, the Crown sent over Reverend Robert Ratcliffe to establish an Anglican church inside of Boston. Ratcliffe received the warm welcome that one would expect from the Massachusetts colonists. Chiefly, they ignored the guy upon his arrival. If Ratcliffe thought that he was going to find support amongst Dudley or the other moderates, he was disappointed to learn that he was no more welcome among them than he was with members of the faction. What Andrews set out to do upon arrival was not force the Anglican church down the throats of a population that certainly was not going to be amenable to such a thing. Rather, the play was to introduce liberty of conscience into the colony the hope being that by introducing other denominations, it would break up the power held by the Puritan church, and that the church would eventually wither and die, or at least become just another face in the crowd, thus denying it the power that it had long enjoyed. 
the colonists, who had little interest in doing anything to support the Anglican Church, took their first shots by simply not participating and doing all they could to hinder the process. When Andros came, he decided to cordially request permission to have a share of the Puritan Meeting House, specifically the South Meeting House. Andros's request was quickly denied. The Puritans claimed that such a move would be terribly offensive. Edmund Andros, however, had no actual intention of really being denied, and he made clear that his asking was really much more of a formality than anything else. He took the meeting house and would use it until a formal Anglican church was completed a year later. As to this entire ordeal, Increase Mather would write that Applications were made for the use of one another of the meeting houses, but they were strenuously resisted. Andros' own counsel once again found themselves opposed to the man that they were supposed to be counseling. Well, the moderates politically seemed amenable to the idea of opening up the government and disposing of the faction, they were far less enthusiastic about uprooting the church. When Andros began attacking the concept of public support for Puritan ministers, the moderates fought back hard against it. Unsurprisingly, the fight was ultimately a losing battle. However, once again, we see the moderates becoming increasingly isolated from Edmund Andros. This isolation was not just from Andros and his pressure to increase Anglicanism in the colony, but also from the suddenly expanded size of the colony. The Quakers, for example, were not huge fans of the Massachusetts Puritans. If you'll recall from our first episode this season, the Quakers were openly persecuted by the Puritans back in the 1660s. For the Quakers, disrupting the political harmony of the Puritans seemed like a pretty sweet position. By ending public financial support for the church, Andros was dealing yet another blow to the Puritan church that had for so long been the core of the community. Almost immediately, reports from Puritan ministers began to roll in, talking about the difficulty of sustaining the church, minus the public support that they had become dependent on. For the Puritans, this was not a move to a more equal religious landscape. Rather, it was nothing short of a persecution. Andros, wanting to help further prove that it was a new day in Massachusetts, decided that on January 31, 1687, he was going to commemorate the 1649 execution of Charles I. Charles I, in Massachusetts Puritan circles, was akin to a comic book supervillain. A huge number of the Puritans were able to draw their time in the colony to the persecution they felt under Charles I. When Charles I was beheaded, there was not exactly a lot of tears spilled for the guy in Massachusetts. Now, however, Edmund Andros was commemorating the event and issuing a day of mourning for the former king. The Puritans had become desperate to find anything to cling to in order to escape what they viewed as a persecution against their very way of life. That glimmer of hope came from James II. Just as the world's quickest review, recall that James II was an open Catholic. However, he had no male children, and Charles II had made sure that he had raised his eldest daughter as an Anglican. So people were begrudgingly accepting to his reign. However, despite the fact that, at least for the moment, an English Catholic dynasty was not a huge concern, 
that did not stop James II from doing what he could to make Catholicism more accepted inside of England. In April of 1687, James II issued what has become known as the Declaration of Indulgence. The Declaration of Indulgence was the first step by James in expanding liberty of consciousness throughout England. In other words, the Declaration would allow for freedom of religion throughout England. James II would likewise kill off the Test Act, which was that act that effectively kept Catholics out of public office. Well, on the surface, liberty of conscience sounds like a good idea. After all, who is going to object to increased freedom of religion? Things get more complicated when you realize that you have a whole lot of people acting primarily out of self-interest. The Declaration of Indulgence was most likely written by our old friend William Penn, and certainly he was the bill's biggest advocate. As we have marched through these past several episodes, William Penn has been lurking right under the surface. Recall that Penn had left Pennsylvania to deal with land disputes between himself and Lord Baltimore. Penn was victorious in that dispute. However, he then got himself wrapped up in the politics back in England. Penn was still hanging around in 1686 and 87 and found himself working closely with the king on drafting the Declaration of Indulgence. Penn, as a Quaker, clearly had ulterior motives in wanting to draft the Declaration of Indulgence. The Quakers had long felt persecution at the hands of the Anglicans. William Penn suddenly found himself in a position to help break the Anglican hold over England. Penn was not going to miss out on such a golden opportunity. James II was in favor of more religious tolerance because, like Penn, he was a religious outsider in England. As a Catholic, James II had spent the past several years with people trying to usurp his power because of it. Liberty of conscience meant that for James II, he could begin to meaningfully end the Catholic persecution going on inside of England. If you're wondering why not just bring down the entire Anglican Church and reinstall Catholicism in England, the answer is that James II wasn't nearly powerful enough to pull that one off. Make no mistake, while there were Catholics inside of England as well as other Catholic sympathizers, the Anglican Church was pretty well entrenched by this point. Indeed, as we are going to see in the coming episodes, just as soon as James II makes any kind of a move that makes the Anglican Church appear to be in any serious danger, William of Orange is going to make his appearance and James II is going to find himself leaving England for a very extended vacation. William Penn and James II actually made for a somewhat logical set of allies. Both men were religious minorities in England and both had faced varying degrees of persecution for their beliefs. Whereas William Penn had been in and out of jails over the years for his views, James II had to deal with potentially being excluded from the crown for his. Not exactly the same, but it did give the two men some amount of common ground. William Penn had long been an outspoken advocate for religious tolerance. And when James II became interested in doing just that in England, Penn slipped very neatly into that space. During the summer of 1686, James II had sent Penn on a mission abroad to meet with William of Orange. William was married to Mary, the eldest daughter of James II and notably an Anglican at the behest of Charles II. Penn's meetings were an attempt to get William on board with James II's plan to repeal the Test Acts. 
This is something that ultimately Penn was unsuccessful in accomplishing. Despite not earning approval from William of Orange, James II went ahead anyway and repealed the Test Acts. The repeal of the Test Acts sent shockwaves throughout England. For both James II and Penn, the repeal of the Test Acts was necessary in protecting the freedoms of Englishmen. For both men, their status as religious minorities was an important element in their decision to preach for tolerance. Well, Penn genuinely does not seem to want or have expected a quicker takeover of the state, ending persecution would be good. It is more unclear, though, what James II would have wanted. However, at a minimum, he is setting the stage whereby he would allow for Catholics in England to begin to increase their own power. For the members of Parliament, the repeal of the Test Acts was seen as an overreach of royal authority, usurping the power of Parliament, and was viewed as a step towards Catholic tyranny descending upon England. The Parliament did not believe that the King had the authority to legislate via royal decree. This, therefore, would be the beginning of a long battle over the extent of royal power. It was under this backdrop that William Penn would aid James II in drafting the Declaration of Indulgence, bringing liberty of conscience first to Scotland and then some months later to England itself. Back in Massachusetts, the colonists were desperate to cling to Puritan values. In a world where they were desperately looking for straws to grasp at, they did not miss an opportunity to grasp at the straw that was just presented to them by James II. The Puritans in New England were thrilled at the news of the Declaration. It meant that the king still had their best interests in mind, and that it was Edmund Andros that was the problem. The Puritans took the declaration as proof that the king meant to protect them from the seemingly arbitrary attempts by Andros to get control over the religion of New England. It is important to understand a couple of very key parts about this. First, this is an example of grasping at straws at its absolute finest. The Puritans in New England certainly did not want liberty of conscience. The entire idea was anathema to them. Liberty of conscience did not mean that there would be continued Puritan hegemony. Rather, it meant the destruction of that very thing. So, the question therefore becomes, why on earth did the Puritans decide to herald this as some great victory? The answer is that the Puritans in New England, and especially throughout Massachusetts, suddenly found themselves looking directly at what must have seemed like a return to the 1630s under Charles I. Their way of life was being rapidly disrupted, and in their minds, actual persecution must not have been that far off at the hands of Andros and his Anglican priests. It isn't as though the Puritans were somehow unaware that James II was doing this to increase the rights of Catholics. They completely understood what was happening. However, in this situation, it was a matter of fixing one problem at a time. At that very moment, the biggest risk to them was persecution at the hands of the Anglicans. They could deal with the fact that James II was going to try and reintroduce Catholicism later. It was at the moment a more remote and therefore less important problem. Edmund Andros likewise wasn't confused about the sudden celebrations of the king that the Puritans were suddenly having. He never for a minute lost sight of the fact that the Puritans viewed the Declaration of Indulgence as a protection from him, and that they were not suddenly fans of liberty of conscience. 
Andros, therefore, did what he could to shut down the Puritan celebrations of the Declaration. Andros cited justification in shutting down the celebrations as a public necessity to keep large public gatherings restricted, as we are still standing in the aftermath of the tax revolts we discussed last week. This position became somewhat more difficult to maintain, however, when it came to increase Mather. Mather had been selected by the Puritans to head to England and thank the king for his awesome leadership skills and especially for allowing liberty of conscience. Andros, seeing through this thinly veiled attempt to head to England and air their grievances regarding him, sought to shut Mather down. With the help of Edward Randolph, Mather was hit with a defamation suit. Amazingly, though, the jury acquitted Mather of the charge, which, considering the show trials that we have already seen, it makes it a much more surprising outcome. Randolph would make another attempt to hold up Mather's trip. However, Mather was able to sneak out before being hit with a writ. By the time the escape had been figured out, Mather was on his way to England. It is certainly questionable what the Puritans hoped to accomplish by sending Mather to England. However, by the time he left in 1687, the colonists were desperate to have their grievances heard. While they likely understood that things were unlikely to go back to the pre-Dominion way of life, they were anxious to get out from the authoritarian and arbitrary thumb of Edmund Andros. Well, we have spent the majority of today discussing the concerns of an Anglican takeover in Massachusetts. I want to wrap up this episode by discussing what that actually looked like on the ground. Yes, the Puritans were absolutely concerned about persecution. However, what they had seen by the time that Mather left still felt well below what one would consider to be persecution. Certainly, there had been nothing comparable to the events in England that had led to the Great Migration in the first place. As much as the Puritans may have wanted to label Andros William Laud Part 2, Edmund Andros was simply not William Laud. For the Puritans, the primary manifestation of the introduction of Anglicanism initially was more of an irritation than anything else. Earlier today, we had discussed Andros requesting use over a Puritan meeting house for Anglican services. When the Puritans rebuffed him, Andros went ahead and informed them that he was going to use the building anyway. This was, not surprisingly, an unpopular move by Andros, and of course was a direct slap in the face to the Massachusetts Puritans. However, beyond ongoing scheduling problems between the Anglicans and the Puritans, it never really went much further than that. Sure, it enraged the Puritans to have their meeting house shared by the local Anglicans. However, there was never an attempt by Andros to outlaw Puritanism. Andros, despite taking over the South Meeting House, never actually kicked the Puritans out or stopped them from using the facility. There was some squabbling between the Anglicans and the Puritans over what time the other party could use the meeting house. However, beyond that, there was little else that resembled anything like actual persecution. Andros would cause a bit more anger at the construction of his new church, King's Chapel. The Puritans were offended by the large wooden chapel because it stood against the very thing they had fought for so long to prevent. It also didn't help that Andros constructed the church on the site of a Puritan graveyard. Again, however, while this would serve as an official Anglican church inside of Boston, the first such church, Andros did nothing more to stop Puritan services once the church was complete. As a quick aside, if you ever travel to Boston today, you can go visit King's Chapel. 
though the original building that was built by Edmund Andros was replaced in the 1750s by the current stone structure in the same spot. Growing Anglicanism inside of New England meant that there was a relaxing of what had been a half-century of rigid rules and structure. In Charlestown, a maypole was constructed. The maypole was later cut down by the Puritans who found the pole to be offensive. The good folks of Charlestown, not to be outdone, went ahead and constructed an even larger maypole, further enraging the Puritans. If you are wondering why I'm bothering to bring up a maypole, it is because I came across it in my reading in preparation for this episode, and it is notably the second time I've talked about Puritans cutting down a maypole. Way back in episode 1.19, I talked briefly about the town of Marymount, where the Plymouth settlers became flabbergasted at the construction of a maypole and immediately cut the thing down. So there you go. You listen to my podcast and I'll provide you with the most complete history out there on the destruction of maypoles in 17th century New England. In addition to things such as the construction of maypoles, we also see celebrations on Christmas, an introduction of the theater, and a general relaxing of the strict Puritan code of morality begin to mark the increased influence from Anglicans within the colony. The main takeaway from all of this is that, despite Puritan fears, Edmund Andros wasn't interested in converting Puritans to the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church was the established Church of England, and Andros was going to make sure that the church had a presence in New England. Andros was never terribly interested in forced conversions, and frankly, I see little to suggest that he was really all that concerned at all with matters of the soul. Rather, he was a company man, and the Anglican Church was a division of that company. Andros further realized that the Anglican Church was a critical institution, as it would operate as a method whereby he would be able to not just check, but actually begin breaking up Puritan hegemony that had for so long dominated Massachusetts. Even if the political power of the Puritan Church had already been stripped, it was in the best interest of Andros to do what he could do to weaken what he must have still viewed as his biggest rival within Massachusetts. However, ultimately, despite the widespread fears amongst Puritans of 1630-style persecution, that would never actually materialize. Instead, what the Puritans were left to face was the likely still terrifying reality that their once all-powerful church was rapidly losing influence inside of the colony. Next time, we are going to broaden our views and expand beyond Massachusetts. The Dominion of New England was a big place and encompassed a lot more than just the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Next week, we are going to branch out and see how the other colonies dealt with the Dominion of New England. We are then going to turn our attention towards the defense of the colony from rising tensions in Maine, an event that would prove to come at the absolute worst of times for Edmund Andros. Until then, I hope you all have an excellent two weeks, that you are staying healthy, and that you are staying safe. Now, this episode is obviously dropping right in between Christmas and New Year's, so I want to wish all of you a very happy holiday season. I will see you all back here in two weeks' time as we begin to discuss the other regions of the Dominion of New England. <laughs>